Welcome to episode 155 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Why, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, (laughs) if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends, so I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time, and I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous and they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. 
unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 155 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. And how are you today, Jen? Well, I'm doing great. Did you watch the video that I sent you yesterday? Oh, yes. Well, actually, I saw it on Facebook, and then I realized you sent it to me, too. I'm very impressed. Awesome. Are you in that other group? 
I guess so. Okay. <laughs> it's a small group and it's women only. I didn't know you were in that one. Oh, what group is it? Well, I put a different one on today. Oh, maybe that's different. Yeah, it is different because the one I sent you was yesterday. Oh, I haven't looked at that one. Yeah. The moderators and people were like trying to do a headstand. So yesterday I was like, I'm going to try to do a headstand. I haven't tried to do a headstand in, I don't know, decades. I used to be really good at them. So I put a little mat down on the floor and I videoed myself doing a headstand and I sent it to the moderators and I posted it in one little tiny Facebook group because that was only women because you could kind of see my butt a little bit (laughs) when my shirt fell down. I have on like some low rise jeans and I was like, yeah, I can't put that out in the world. That's the one I sent you. But then today I was like, I want to do it again. So I tried again and I was able to do it. But I, I posted that in the big Facebook group because you cannot see my butt. Okay, now I see the one that you sent me. That's a different one, but you can see my butt. And I'm sorry I've said that three times. <laughs> <laughs> that is very impressive. I'm like a child. Okay, I taught elementary school for 28 years. Anyway, but yeah, I was so proud of myself. I was able, that the one I sent you last night, that was my first try. And I did it. I got on my little hands and knees and pulled my feet up and got up into the headstand position and just held it. And then this morning, it took me two tries. But I did it again. So I'm like, I think I'm going to do a headstand every day. Now we just got to get you doing cold showers. Yeah, I'm not doing that ever on any day. Never. (laughs) But the headstand, it feels so, like, I feel so powerful. Like, I can tell I'm engaging my stomach and my arms. So, like, honestly, I really might do a headstand every day and not a shower headstand. (laughs) No, I think there's so much power to exercises you can do with your own body weight. Well, it really, I mean, I could really tell, like, I think probably it was harder for me today because I had just done it last night. You know, I'd used the muscles. They might've been a little fatigued, which sounds crazy, but I can really feel it in my arms and feel it in my, my core. So, and then I did a cartwheel. I'm just like playing like a child. Yeah. I think given the whole coronavirus situation, the stressful times. It's really interesting the effect I think it's having on people as far as it's just changing our life so much. Well, week to week as we're recording from one week to the next, like everything is different. Right, exactly. And, you know, by the time this one comes out, because we don't record the day that it's released. So who knows what will even be happening when this episode comes out the day that it's out. But in the meantime, I'm, you know, struggling with stress. It's stressing me out. Is it stressing you out? Yes. I feel like for different reasons, but yes. I don't know. I don't like to identify with saying that something is stressing me out, but <gasps> sorry. Can you tell this is like, this is something I work with. Like, I don't like to ever say I'm stressed because I don't like to say it out loud. I'm going to say it. I'm stressed because I'm not usually, and I usually just go through life and sail through, but, but this is, you know, it's, it's stressing me out a lot. The uncertainty, I guess, because I am a person who likes to, you know, plan, get things, you know, sorted out. And this is so unplannable. Actually, so I think I am the exact same way with the uncertainty and everything. And I think prior to this, that's the reason I have been struggling with (laughs) sort of a chronic stress because of the uncertainty I've had around some health things I've been working through. So I, that's why I was saying that I was hesitant about the situation. It's like, I think I'm less stressed about it. And this is me just being really open about this just because I've 
been dealing with a state of chronic stress. So when something else comes on exterior, it almost doesn't affect me as much because it's something because I've been working on this like every single day. That's why I'm so into like mindset and meditation and like, you know, working on that all the time. Yeah, for me, I'm by nature a problem solver. You know, if, if something happens, I roll up my sleeves and solve it, handle it. But this is one of those things I don't know what to do. So, <laughs> you know, I did order some meat today, <laughs> you know, to have. And I'm not stockpiling because there there aren't things to stockpile, really. But, you know, I'm like, Chad, can you grow some tomatoes? How fast can you grow some tomatoes? It's just letting me know how very unprepared we are as people, Chad and I, to, you know, we're suburban people who who buy things. So... Not living in a state of fear. I want I want to put that out there. Not living in a state of fear, but stress through uncertainty. I guess that's yeah. You know, I think a lot of listeners can identify with that. But I I have confidence we're all going to be fine. A little tool I like to put out there for listeners. First of all, so I don't know when this airs. I probably will have aired an interview that I did with Emily Fletcher. So she's the author of Stress Less, Accomplish More, and she's the one I talked about her on the podcast before, but her book was the first book that actually convinced me to start a meditation practice. And her meditation practice is, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's its made for the like productivity driven person who thinks they don't have time to meditate. <laughs> so it's like two 15 minute sessions twice a day, just engaging with that after reading her book and then having the interview with her and everything I found so helpful for situations like this, because you start realizing, you know, we're talking about feeling stressed about something. You start realizing these stress thoughts or these thoughts that you have that they aren't you and that you don't have to, like they don't have to affect you. Like you can still have these these thoughts of worry or fear or stress. That's fine because those thoughts might come anyway, but you don't have to be defined by them. So they literally don't have to affect you in a negative way. And another thing that I really like is, on the flip side, instead of thinking, oh, it's not just going to affect me, you can use it as a cue. Every time you get you know, a fear thought or a stress thought about the situation, you can use it as a cue to instead replace it with a thought of gratitude because you can always be grateful for something and you can't both be grateful for something in, in fear and stress at the exact same time, like it's one or the other. So get excited about any fear thoughts or stress thoughts because they can be a cue for gratitude and that's something you can carry on throughout the rest of your life. So I'll put a link in the show notes to that interview with Emily Fletcher. Well, thanks for sharing that resource. I think that's a good one because, you know, those of us who don't typically have these feelings, I think, are feeling differently. And so learning how to cope is a great tool to have in our toolbox. Yes, exactly. What I'm doing is, like I said, I'm trying to have fun. You know, the headstand, the cartwheel, the sun is out. You know, I got a little sunburn yesterday, so that means I stayed out too long. But the weather is just beautiful. So I'm enjoying spring, and I'm going to make the most of every day and enjoy myself. So what about you? What's new with you? One last thing about the coronavirus. I wasn't going to do an episode about it on my other show. I was wondering if I should, because you know how everybody is doing an episode like everybody. And I wasn't going to because I don't consider myself like an authority or anything like that. So I was going to just keep having the show, you know, with the normal episodes. But then actually I had Dr. Kirk Parsley on before. He's the the sleep expert. He's the one who created Sleep Remedy, which 
people adore. I mean, he and he's brilliant. And his team actually reached out to me and he's like and said, "Hey, he's been doing a lot of research on coronavirus specifically, and so he's conducting podcast interviews just about that." And I was like, "Okay, well, that's kind of meant to be then. If it's coming to me, like, <laughs> you know, that was the other thing. I was like, I don't want to have to like go, you know, try to find an expert and book them and but then it just kind of like popped up in my inbox. So I was like, okay. So I'm going to ask him all the questions that I have. Will you pop that one in early, like as soon as it's done? Yeah, that was the thing. You know, you're talking about how things are changing week to week. When talking with the scheduling, I was like, I want to make it the fastest turnaround possible. So like we're scheduling it so that it'll be a fast turnaround because otherwise it might not even be relevant. It's still going to be about a 10 day, but hopefully those will be valuable information. I'm sure it will be. That's part of the uncertainty that's leading to the anxiety is, you know, if I had a set end date, if they said, all right, this is going to go on until this is the date, I could be like, okay, that's what I know. We will be, you know, but it's the uncertainty that I'm like, well, I want to go to the beach. We were going to go to the beach in, you know, a couple of weeks. Can I go to the beach? Should I go to the beach? You know, people would say, no, but it's our beach condo. You know, we could shelter in place there. Is that okay? I just don't know. And that's the uncertainty that resonated with me was so much. And I think this will relate to any any listeners who have any sort of like chronic health condition that they're working on, they can't quite figure out. It, it goes back to what you were saying about the uncertainty. It's like if you just knew that you could do something to fix it, there wouldn't be the fear and the stress because you could do the plan. Even if I knew it was going to be bad, if they're like, it's going to be bad, this is what it's going to be like, this is what you do, I could do that. But not knowing is the part that's like, okay, you know. Exactly. Because literally, oh my goodness, Jen, the current things I struggle with health-wise. I have said this before. I said, if somebody told me on this date, even if it's like two years from now, you know, everything would be resolved. I would not be stressed about it for one more day. I I would go two years and I literally would not have a stress thought. Yeah, it's the uncertainty. And so with the situation, same thing. It's incredible what you can do when you know that there's an end or when you know there is a goal. But if you don't know if you can reach that goal, then it's like, yeah, that's when it's hard. Exactly. And I'm an optimist, which is why I'm like, it's going to be fine. We're going to be fine. But I'm like, but when? When will this be over? And so that's the, what we don't know. Sort of tying it into intermittent fasting. I think maybe that's one reason intermittent fasting works so well for a lot of people is because it's so black and white. As far as, you know, it's not like you have to like, am I doing enough calories? Am I? It's like bright lines. Well, it's it's the power of the delay, don't deny, because every day I can delay my eating to a window easily. Every single day I can do that. And then my window opens and I get to eat delicious food. But I know that's coming every day. I look forward to that and I know it's going to be there. So it's predictable. Right. Exactly. That's why I think even if somebody were to do like a more type of restrictive diet, that it should be planned and have an end date like very soon, (laughs) you know, like because the idea of like perpetually doing anything restrictive or not knowing when something is going to end or perpetually doing something until you reach this goal that might or might not happen. I think that's when it, you know, becomes draining and uncertain and just sets up for potential further failure or rebound. There was a study I wanted to discuss if you're open to it about fasting. I'm always open to studies and fasting and all that stuff. Yeah. So as listeners know, I do wonder how many times I'm going to say this. I feel like a year from now, I'll still be like, as listeners know, I am slowly working my way through Dr. Michael Greger's how not to diet still. And as new listeners might not know, it's taking me so long because he puts a study after pretty much every sentence. And then I go read 
the study after every sentence. So the section I'm reading right now in his book is actually about eating at night versus eating in the morning and those effects on weight loss, metabolism, hunger hormones, things like that. Did you read that section, Jen? Well, I was at C and I flipped through that section and he said a lot of things very definitively, but I didn't have good internet connection. So I didn't look at any of the studies and then I moved on with my life. Like I was irritated by that point. <laughs> Let me just put it, put it mildly because I was like, you know, anyway, I was waiting for you to get to this section because I knew you were going to dig into the studies. This is not even the fasting section. I'm not even to that yet. This is a meal timing section. Because every time I've ever read a study that talked about meal timing, I can find a flaw in it and I'm irritated. You know, we've talked about this before. I don't like to draw conclusions with data that is not really what, that's not really what they studied. Anyway, so go ahead. So the reason I was excited to read this section was he actually drew my attention to some studies I had not read before. And I think that's because they don't ever really use the word fasting in this study. So I hadn't really come across them. Oh, well, they do. That lies because the first, the first word says fast. But in any case, that's not what they're focused on. So the study that he was looking at was called The Internal Circadian Clock Increases Hunger and Appetite in the Evening, Independent of Food Intake and Other Behaviors. And what I found fascinating by this study and some of the other studies he referenced as well which actually I didn't find any problems with the setups of the studies or even his interpretation of it. The fascinating thing is he drew the exact opposite conclusion, not wrong, but the exact opposite conclusion that I drew from the studies. Okay, well, I've got to hear it then. What was the study design? What did they do? Okay, well, there is one little thing that I want to get your opinion about if you think that this is misleading at all. Because I always find it very misleading, but I don't know if, if that's just me interpreting it overcritically. Because what he does a lot in the book, he will put a study and he will say, this study found this, like this result. He does this so much. That's why it's like this pattern is becoming so obvious to me. Then there'll be another sentence and it'll say something like, but here's the problem with this study because it doesn't account for this or it doesn't, you know, there's like some sort of caveat, right? Right. And then the next sentence will always be, so that's what this other study just did. He'll say, in order to like account for this, you'd have to do this. So that's what this study did. Which is logical if you think about it, right? Yeah, yeah. Nothing wrong with that at all. The problem that I'm struggling with is it makes it seem like the second study is like a follow-up to the first study, that it's like accounting for information that has already happened. And so now they're like testing for this other thing. But so many times, the second study that he'll reference happened like 20 years before the other study. So it's like, why did you start with the first study? Right. They're not sequential. Yeah. So like, for example, like what I'm looking at right now, he talks about a 2013 study where researchers instructed a group of young men not to eat after 7 p.m. for two weeks compared to a control period where they continued their regular eating habits. After the night eating restriction, they ended up about two pounds lighter. Then he says, this is not surprising given dietary records showing that they inadvertently ate fewer calories during that period, which he's saying. And then he says, to see if timing has metabolic effects beyond just foreclosing eating opportunities, you'd have to force people to eat the same amount of the same food, but just at different times of the day. The U.S. Army stepped forward to carry out just such an investigation. Okay, then he goes into the experiments. 
the thing I find just like a little bit misleading, doesn't it sound like to that that this study would have happened accounting for that previous study in a way? Maybe. But the thing about that is all they did was stop eating after 7 p.m., right? That was the only difference. So really quickly, the first study, 2013, the follow-up study that he references is 1995. It sounds to me like, okay, they had the group that they stopped eating after 7 p.m. And they compared that to people who just ate normally with their normal eating habits. To me, that doesn't say anything about, like, you can't say, oh, eating after 7 p.m. is bad. To me, that sounds like eating all day and continuing to eat into the night is bad. Yeah. And this is like another thing is it's what you just said. (laughs) Basically, they told them, you know, not to eat between 7 p.m. and 6 a.m., compared to eating normal. And then they lost weight after, you know, restricting the night eating. And see, to me, just saying that eating at night makes you gain weight is so flawed. Exactly. So, and this is another thing about like, it's so interesting how we're like doing the semantics. So you and I just agree that this study doesn't really make much sense because, I mean, they took people who are eating normally (laughs) and then they compared them to people who were, they told them not to eat, you know, at night. So obviously they probably ate less. <laughs> and he even says that. So the study doesn't really show anything. So like, why is he including it? All it shows is if you cut off a little bit of your eating, you will lose some weight. It doesn't mean that it has to be the nighttime that you're cutting off. Like if they cut off the night eating in one group and cut off the morning eating in another group, there you go. Now we have some time data. Exactly, which is actually something he brings up next. The point for just like how things are put out there, I just find it interesting. So by the way, for listeners who want to look it up, the study, this study is called Restricting Nighttime Eating Reduces Daily Energy Intake in Healthy Young Men, a short-term crossover study. The point is, so it sounds like me, you, and Dr. Greger all agree that this study doesn't really prove anything. So it's like, why is he including it? The only point in including it is to put the idea, in my opinion, I know he says it's not really important, or he says, quote, this is not surprising. But I, the only reason I can see that he would want to include it is because he can still put that idea out there that reducing nighttime eating leads to weight loss. Does that make sense? Because we know that like constant exposures to ideas, you know, even if he discredits it after, we were still presented with it at the beginning, you know? So anyways, the follow-up experiment that he had actually did compare eating just breakfast to eating just dinner, and it was controlled. Now, were these, let me ask you this, were these the the army guys that were working so hard and doing like crazy amounts of manual type things during the day? I mean, it is military operational rations, so it would be the military. There's one I'm thinking of. They were doing a lot of crazy work, like, like they were having to like simulate, you know, all this act. No, they weren't simulating the activity. They were doing the activity, but they were hiking. I can't remember. They were carrying their packs and they weren't fueled properly. So this is called not eating enough, overcoming underconsumption of military operational rations. That sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. See, that's not a good study either because that's a whole different set of variables. I mean, I'm not under eating with my intermittent fasting window for my body and then doing a ton of crazy working out. That's a whole different level of stressors for the body. I just found like the whole text for this whole one. So I'm going to actually have to read the whole thing and report back. So 
let's talk about it more next week. We can table it and come back to it. Yeah, because that was not the one I was actually going to talk about. (laughs) This is like a whole rabbit hole. So the one I was going to talk about was the one I talked about at the beginning. So the internal circadian clock increases hunger and appetite in the evening, independent of food intake and other behaviors. And this is where I'm saying it concluded something that, and then I had the exact opposite conclusion. So tell me the title again. It's called The Internal Circadian Clock Increases Hunger and Appetite in the Evening Independent of Food Intake and Other Behaviors. Okay. That means you're going to be hungry in the evening, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, that's true for me. (laughs) Me too. Thumbs up. Absolutely. All right, go ahead. Exactly. So basically the takeaway of the study was that they controlled people very intensely for their sleep weight cycle and cues and things like that. And they had them rate their appetite and like and food preferences throughout the day. Um, and this was an in laboratory protocol. So it was it wasn't done at home. So basically they found that we have an endogenous circadian rhythm attached to hunger. So basically we feel hungry at certain times and it's completely independent of everything else. So it doesn't matter how long it's been since you last ate doesn't matter when you slept. It does not matter. Basically, we get hungriest around 8 p.m. And we are least hungry around 8 a.m. So that sounds so true for me. Yes, least hungry in the morning, most hungry at night. Um, And there's a lot of theories for why this may be. So some of the theories are that sleep inhibits appetite and then that carries over to the beginning. But what they were saying is, you know, sleep didn't seem to be a factor. So it's probably not that. Another thing could be that people already tend to eat the largest meal. What I'm saying right now, this is things that the study mentioned had been previous theories. So another theory was that like people tend to eat late at night anyway. So then they're not hungry in the morning, basically. But one of the things they point about this is that people actually tend to experience low leptin levels in the morning. So that actually does not support that idea. And then what they were looking at was, you know, like, does sleep actually play a factor? And they were testing that. And what they found was that, no, it doesn't seem to, that regardless of any external factors, people tend to get most hungry around 8 p.m., like I said, and least hungry in the morning. So it's funny because so I read that and I was like, okay, that kind of supports the idea that, you know, people who like having a late night eating window. If that's exactly what it sounds like to me. Yeah, that's how I would interpret that. It sounds like, hey, it's natural to eat later at night. You know, did you read The Warrior Diet? We, Oh, yeah, we've talked about him. Duh, we've had him on the podcast. Sorry. Everything's running together. Episode 155. But he has that evening window and talks about how that's how we are designed to be. We do what we need to do during the day. And then at night we sit down and have our big meal. That's what feels right to my body. Exactly. And that was my exact thought. I was like, see this, I mean, this just shows that we're naturally supposed to be eating at night. However, he drew the exact opposite conclusion, which actually made me rethink things a little bit. You're going to have to have him on your podcast. I think the hard thing would be, I really like engaging with honest, nuanced dialogue with people. And I don't, I don't know what I would do if I was like, I don't want to say calling him out, but like, you know, trying to, I I don't want to ever get too like argumentative or anything. And that's why I want to bring on people with seemingly different ideas. If I, if when I listen to them or when I read their work, I don't get a sense of cherry picking. Even if they do cherry pick, I get a sense that they honestly believe this. And I mean, I know he probably, he honestly believes this, but if I get the sense that they're open to other ideas or maybe thinking that they might be wrong about something, 
that's the people I want to talk to. I don't care if they believe the exact opposite thing of me, but if, you know, they're looking for how they might be wrong instead of how they're always right, I don't know if like he would be like that. So um, I don't know how I would engage with him. Hi, friends. Now, I know most of you are familiar with the power of protein to help us to recompose our bodies, get fitter and leaner by losing body fat and protecting and gaining muscle or lean body mass. Now, protein supplementation is one of the best ways to do it. It is scientifically validated to help us produce high quality weight loss. Now, when it comes to weight loss, traditionally, a lot of people will do high carb, low calorie diets, and those have been shown to generate upwards of 40 percent lean body mass loss. Now, protecting your lean body mass and your muscle is crucial when you are wanting to lose some fat because during weight loss, you don't want the weight lost to be coming from your muscle. The more muscle you're able to retain, the more you're retaining metabolically active tissue, which is going to keep your metabolic rate much higher and help you maintain the fat loss after you have achieved it. Now, one of the best ways, as I said, to do this is through using protein shakes. I've been on the lookout for years to find a high-quality protein supplement that does not have fillers, dyes, artificial sweeteners, and using cheap protein concentrate, which can cause all kinds of issues like bloating and indigestion. I finally created a protein supplement that meets my standards, and it's something that I personally use every single day, and that is Tone Protein. Tone Protein not only is extremely clean and high quality with only whey protein isolate, no concentrates, no fillers. It is also scientifically formulated to optimize muscle protein synthesis, which is going to help you build lean body mass and muscle in the most efficient way possible. I am so incredibly excited about Tone Protein. Not only is it extremely high quality and optimized to help you recompose your body. It is also absolutely delicious. We've been having so much fun with all the different flavors that we are creating, and I just can't wait for you all to try it. Now, I wanted to create a special launch discount for all of you listeners so that you could check it out, try it out, see how you like it, and test it out for yourself. In order to receive that launch discount, you can head over to toneprotein.com and sign up with your name and email address, and you'll receive an email to double opt in to the list, and you'll be the first to know when Tone Protein is available to order, and you will also receive that exclusive launch discount. It is going to be the biggest discount that we ever offer on Tone Protein. So I really want all of you to be able to receive it. So be sure to go to toneprotein.com, sign up with your name and email, and you'll be double opted in to that list. And I am so excited for you all to try it out. Let me know what you think of it and let it help you to optimize your body recomposition goals, get that fat loss and maintain and protect your lean body mass while doing it. But in any case, he says, it makes sense then that if you are only eating one meal a day and want to lose weight, you'd want to eat in the morning when your hunger hormones may be less active. I didn't talk about the hormone specifically. So ghrelin and leptin are hunger hormones. And it seems that they are highest in the evening, the, the hunger hormone and lowest in the morning. And then, like I said, with leptin, which makes you feel full, it's actually 
low in the morning. Yeah, see, I'm 100% that the only reason that I'm like, uh-uh, for that theory is because for me, okay, I've done it. I've tried it. I've seen what would happen. You know, when I have said, I'm just going to eat in the morning, I'm going to have one meal and that's it. I'm starving the whole rest of the day and it's like white knuckling. So it makes no sense to me to, to have a lifestyle where I'm miserable. You know how I said I had a new conclusion based on his conclusion? That's sort of, it's sort of the same thing. So it's funny though, because I read that from him and, I, and it, my, my initial response was, um, no, opposite. But then I sat and I thought about it and I was like, from his perspective, I mean, that is a valid point. I could see the logic in it, but in practice, it doesn't work like that for my body. Right. So this is what I was thinking. It, it was a huge epiphany for me. I was thinking maybe for people who struggle with overeating, because I feel like with the, with the whole intermittent fasting thing, some people oftentimes struggle more with, they have like no problem with the fasting, but they struggle with, you know, overeating in the eating window. And then some people, and there's blends of everything, but, but then also some people really struggle with the fasting, but they have like really no problem with the eating window. So maybe if you, there's something to think about. If you struggle with the overeating part of it, it might be that you could play around with maybe trying like a breakfast eating window because it might be that, you know, that might address that. But if you're the type that struggles with the fasting and feeling hungry, then if we know that those hunger hormones are coming up anyway at 8 p.m., I would not encourage a breakfast eating window, you know? I think it provides a really nuanced picture. I'm 100% a fan of experimenting to see what works for you. And so even if a study came out that was 100% conclusive that there were biological benefits to having an early morning window, I don't want to spend my life white-knuckling it through every afternoon and evening to get to my morning eating window tomorrow. You know, that would not feel like a lifestyle to me. But again, I have not seen a study that definitively shows that. But we really have to find a way that this feels like a lifestyle to us. I know a few people who have morning eating windows, a few people that are friends of mine in the community. They have a morning eating window. It works beautifully for them. They don't like having an eating window. They don't feel well when they eat late at night. They can't sleep well. I believe them. And I would never try to force them into an evening eating window because I know, you know, what feels right to them is what they should do. So it just, I'm irritated by the thought that there's a, a best time for all bodies to do something. And the fact that people keep trying to pigeonhole it into the early in the day. But I haven't yet seen evidence that makes that universally true. Even though the people keep citing it, they're like, no, morning is better. Here's why. I'm like, well, that's not what that study says. And somebody else will say, morning is better. Here's why. I'm like, that study also doesn't say that. So <laughs> I'm just really fascinated because it seems like, honestly, from the studies that I've seen, okay, here's another thing, Jen. <laughs> this is huge. I just had another thought. So we'll see that there are all these studies trying to show that, you know, eating breakfast is most important for weight loss or, you know, that these patterns are best for losing weight. But it seems like all of the studies <laughs> or like the one we just looked at seem to support that naturally our bodies want to eat in the evening. And I mean, it's sort of similar to the idea that naturally our bodies at the same time want to store on excess fat, store on, put on weight. I don't think our bodies want to automatically store inflammatory fat that is detrimental to our health. But I do think from like an evolutionary perspective, 
we are driven to consume food. We're driven to overconsume rather than underconsume because in a historical time period of potential food scarcity, food was not always assured that it would be there. So when there was food, we would stock up you know, to put on weight. So I think it's why we have the obesity epidemic today because now we are surrounded with these hyper palatable foods 24-7. It's no wonder that we are, you know, just putting on all the weight. But I've also seen that theory discussed where they say, but it also wouldn't serve our bodies well to be overly fat because then we wouldn't be able to run away or, or you know. So our bodies, there's that homeostasis again. Our bodies don't want to keep putting on more and more fat. The only caveat with that is that they are. The reason they are is because we're out of alignment with the way our bodies are supposed to be and we're eating food that isn't really food. We've lost track of our satiety signals. I think the the problem is what we're eating and the foods and how often we're eating them and the beverages and the, you know, sodas and the juices. I mean, that's the problem. That's why our body doesn't know what to do. If we just had everybody with real food, I really think that we wouldn't see this this problem that we're seeing. I agree 100%. The reason I'm drawing attention to this is because, and I think this is so key, apparently from some of the studies, it does seem that there is the potential that eating in the evening might lead to greater fat storage than controlled eating in the morning. So let's take out, I'm going to circle back around to this because I think this is the important part about whether or not this is doable or easy or implementable. I think in controlled study, like like really, really controlled studies for a lot of people, it might be the case that if they ate the exact same meal of X amount of calories in the evening compared to the exact same meal of X amount of calories in the morning and it was controlled and they didn't break it, (laughs) I think it's quite possible that yes, the people eating in the morning would probably lose more weight. The caveat is that doesn't change the fact that regardless of that, in the evening, those hunger hormones are still going to happen. Regardless of the purpose of those hunger hormones, even if the purpose of those hunger hormones is to make you gain weight, they're still going to happen. So in a way, it doesn't matter. This is my current thought, and I'm putting it out there that I might change my ideas on this. But right now I'm thinking, in a way, yes, maybe nighttime eating Yes, maybe it is more likely to make you gain weight. Maybe we do have hunger hormones at night to make us more likely to gain weight. That doesn't mean the solution is that you can't eat at night and you have to eat in the morning because you could still take all of that. You could say, yes, I know that the hunger hormones are going to come at night. I know that's going to make me more likely to gain weight than if I was eating it in the morning. But so you could choose to run away and be scared and, and do breakfast and then just be hungry and miserable at night. Or you could say, okay, I understand this. So let me adjust the rest of my life to account for this. What would that look like? It would look like eating still at night when you're hungry and then not eating as well all throughout the day. So I think it's totally fine <laughs> that maybe in a controlled situation, eating at night makes you gain more weight than eating in the morning. And again, we don't know. That's also a, a conjecture. I, yes, we don't know that, but it does seem like a lot of the studies do seem, I mean, I know, I know there's not a ton, but. Well, but this, uh, again, the, I, I think a lot of the studies are like that first one you mentioned from 2013, where the only change was the men stopped eating after 7 p.m., but they were still eating all day. I think eating all day and into the night is a bad idea. I would like them to shift it up <laughs> instead of shift it down. <laughs> you know, anyway, 
it's interesting how we still just have to go with what feels right to us. And I would just encourage everybody to keep doing that. There's also been some studies where they do the same amount of calories, but they break it up differently. So like it's the same amount of calories, but it'll be like front load it for breakfast. And then, so this is with no fasting, but front load it for breakfast and then like, you know, titrate down versus like the opposite pattern. So less calories in the morning and then more and more as the day goes on. And I think that's really a valid approach to look at for how does, you know, timing of eating affect things because they're not fasting. I still don't because it's not the same. I mean, there's so much different stuff that goes on in the body when you are fasting. To me, you can't look at those and draw any conclusions that we could apply to if you're fasting. Eating a little bit in the morning is very different than fasting throughout the morning. Well, no, I'm not saying about fasting. I'm saying about like the potential for energy storage in the morning versus the evening. But I, yeah, I I still think we can't draw conclusions when you're eating all day versus when you're fasting. So if you eat all day, maybe you're storing more energy in the evening. But what if you're fasting all day? That might set you up completely differently. So if they found that eating the same amount of calories, so not talking about fasting, I don't think we can take a study that was eating all day, no matter how they divided it up, and then say, well, that means we should have our fasting time be this time and our eating time be that time, and this is better than that. I don't think we can use an eating all day study to tell us when we're more likely to gain weight with intermittent fasting, if that makes sense. Can we take out the with intermittent fasting? I'm just wondering about all the eating study and the implications on eating in the evening versus eating in the morning. So forget fasting. (laughs) All right. If we're eating all day, then we have all these hormonal things going on all day long. You know, as you're eating all day, I think you become less insulin sensitive and you have more problems, but it's because you're eating all day. I think that probably the more you eat, you know, starting in the morning, eating all day, continuing to eat. I do think that by the end of the day, your body's like, (laughs) you know, and, and so Probably if you're eating all day, it makes sense to eat, you know, like they've told us for forever, eat breakfast like a king, lunch like a whatever, very light dinner. That makes sense if you're eating all day, but that doesn't lead to anything we could apply to people who are not eating all day. Yeah, I think that's a huge, like really valid point is that that's a good thing. I know I said don't talk about fasting, but when you're eating more in the beginning, that's assuming it's coming after a fast. So you're in a more, you know, insulin sensitive state. And then especially in that pattern, you'd be eating less as the day goes on. So there's less of the issue for, you know, insulin issues with the exact opposite. If you're not fasting at all, besides the overnight fast, then if you eat less in the morning, that's when you're most insulin sensitive, but you're eating less. And then like you just said, (laughs) throughout the day, you're eating more and more and more. So it's kind of like compounding the problem. Right. I just don't think we can take that type of situation and say, oh, that means we should eat our big breakfast in the morning and don't eat the rest of the day. I don't think that's what that, but I think a lot of people are. Well, the way I read it is if the situation is I'm going to eat all day, so I'm not going to be fasting and I'm going to control that because I think that's the other huge caveat is that a lot of studies on breakfast show that if people eat a larger breakfast, they typically don't end up overcompensating for it in the end. Oh, I tried that, the big breakfast diet. Do you remember that one? There was a book, the big breakfast diet or something. I tried it. I can remember when I was trying it. I like remember going out to breakfast. It was when Will, Will is 20 now, and he was in elementary school still, but Cal was not. Cal was already 
in sixth grade and beyond. But I can remember taking Will to like Waffle House before school because I'm doing the big breakfast diet. So we would go to Waffle House on our way to school and have a giant breakfast. (laughs) And then I was trying, I couldn't do it. It didn't work for my body. I I did overcompensate later. Yeah, exactly. Because I think there are some people that you know, that's what's always worked for them is eat the bigger breakfast and then eat less. I've never been that person. I don't understand it. And I think a lot of the studies do show that, that even a lot of the studies on breakfast, what they'll show is that people will eat a lot, you know, if they eat a bigger breakfast, then like initially following, they might eat a little bit less, but then ultimately it evens out because they end up eating more anyways. And then with the way energy and expenditure comes into play. So it's, it's really, really like complicated. So I think that the takeaway that I have right now is that I think Yes, the eating more in the beginning of the day and while eating all throughout the day works if could work if you control for the fact that you're going to control the calories, you know, for the rest of the day. It's just that a lot of people like we just talked about get set up where if you eat a bigger breakfast, you still you still get those hunger hormones at 8 p.m. And I might have eaten maybe a smaller lunch, but by dinner I was starving. The more I eat earlier in the day, the more I want to eat at the end of the day. I mean, that's just, I know that about my body. So if I had a giant breakfast, like tomorrow, if I woke up and went to brunch and had a giant brunch, I would probably not be hungry till later in the day, but then I would be able to eat a really big dinner and probably hungrier than if I had just fasted. Yeah. Hi, friends. Now, if you're anything like me, you love biohacking, intermittent fasting, and getting feedback and data on what our bodies are doing. Now, when we do intermittent fasting or extended or prolonged fasting, it's hard to get feedback sometimes on how our bodies are doing in terms of fat burning and ketosis. This is one of the reasons that I created the Tone Device, which is a breath ketone analyzer. It can tell you the rate of fat burning your body is in by detecting the ketones on your breath. If you practice intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, do an occasional 24-hour fast like once a week, or prolonged or extended fasting, it's likely your body is getting into light ketosis. If you are doing keto or low-carb, even sometimes paleo, you may be getting into a deeper state of fat burning and ketosis. If you do a high-carb diet, then you probably get into a light state of ketosis after some fasting. What I love about the tone is that you can simply breathe into it for about four to five seconds, and it will give you instant feedback on the rate of fat burning that your body is at. Now, when we are in ketosis, our bodies are at their highest rate of fat burning, which is what is so neat. We actually breathe out our fat. So the carbons that we are measuring with the tone device are actually coming from our fat. When we practice different approaches like intermittent fasting or doing time-restricted eating, lower-carb diets or keto approaches, our bodies actually make a metabolic switch where fat becomes our primary fuel. And the body takes fat and converts it into ketones in the liver. About 15 to 20% of those circulating ketones are then diffused through our lungs 
out in our breath. And it is so amazing. I absolutely love using the tone every single day. I love the biofeedback, especially when I am doing any kind of fasting. And I can see my body gradually get into a deeper and deeper state of fat burning through those ketone levels going higher and higher. Now, one of the reasons I created the tone is because testing blood ketones is cost prohibitive. The test strips are extremely expensive. They are wasteful. You no longer have to buy test strips anymore. You can just breathe into the tone device for four to five seconds and get that instant feedback. It's a one-time investment and you'll be able to test an unlimited amount of times. Now, I always recommend testing with the tone device fasted first thing in the morning and testing up until you have your first meal of the day and you will be able to see differences there, especially if you do a longer fast, you'll see the ketones go higher and higher and it really is so great to get that biofeedback. Now, for the past year and a half, I've been working on a brand new version of the tone, the second generation tone device, and I am so excited for it to soon be available to you all. I wanted to create a special launch discount for the tone device so that any of you who are interested can take advantage of that discount. I've never discounted the tone device before, but if you are signed up to the exclusive VIP list, you will receive that launch discount. To sign up for the list, you can go to tonedevice.com and enter your name and email address and you will receive an email which you can confirm to double opt-in and you'll be the first to know when the new second generation tone device is available to order and you will also receive that exclusive launch discount. I am so excited for you all to try it so be sure to go and sign up at tonedevice.com. All right now back to our show. I just think like the huge takeaway for me that I'm just trying to reframe is that I just feel like so many times people say, you know, eating before evening might encourage more fat storage because that's the way we're wired and stuff. So, and yes, we're going to be hungry at night. So why fight that? Like why fight that aspect of it if that's natural when, you know, we could address the rest of the day, you know, stop eating when we're not hungry anyway. We could, that's what we could address. And that I think will be a lot easier for a lot of people. Well, it certainly is for me. And I think that, you know, most of the intermittent fasting community, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they're in Fast Feast Repeat. I shared this in there in the, the chapter about choosing your eating window. I did a very informal survey in one of my Facebook groups asking people, you know, what is your eating window timing? And I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but a huge percentage had the afternoon to evening eating window because that's what felt right for them as a lifestyle. And then a few people had the middle of the day and then a very tiny, tiny percentage. All this is in Fast Feast Repeat, which you can pre-order right now everywhere books are sold, but a very tiny percent had that that morning eating window. And then there was a, also a percentage of people that switched it up. So again, this is not a scientific survey. It was just a snapshot of what the people in my group said on that particular day. But I think it's very common of as to what people do. More people have the evening eating window. You know what else it makes me wonder? Do you remember before when I was saying I was contemplating if maybe the reason that like veganism or vegetarianism has a lot of health benefits isn't necessarily so much that the diet itself as much as the type of people that can handle a vegetarian or a veganism diet are the type of people that have a gut microbiome that, you know, is very good at processing energy, creating nutrients, digesting that high plant heavy diet. And we do see a lot that that type of microbiome is very health supporting. 
Whereas people who don't have a microbiome that does well with those type of foods, you know, do IBS, GI issues, things like that, they naturally don't gravitate towards that or they might not be following that diet. So it makes me wonder if people are like selecting the diet that works best for them. Yeah. So like the people thriving and healthy on vegetarian and veganism quite possibly have a a gut microbiome that is thriving on that. So it like self-selects for people that are set up to succeed on it. Well, I think that's true for when we listen to what makes us feel great. I think that's true for everybody if you learn to listen and if you're eating real food. The reason I'm tying it into this is I'm, I, it makes me wonder as well, another whole layer that you could contemplate or ponder would be maybe the reason that we, in epidemiological studies, we're breakfast eaters versus not breakfast eaters. Maybe the type of people that for some reason, so like breakfast is when they're most hungry and then they're not hungry in the evening for whatever reason, they're following that lifestyle. So maybe that's why like that lifestyle works for them. And that's more of a rare thing. Maybe it also self-selects in a way. Does that make sense? I think so. I think if we just left people alone, and of course we haven't because we've thrown crazy dietary advice at the population of the world for decades now, and that's why people are so confused and don't know what to do. But if we had left people alone and let them try to you know, just eat the way their bodies wanted to eat, I think it would look really different. With the caveat being, I think you have to put these people on an island where they don't have access to today's food. Well, yeah. Today's food is a total shift. Yeah. I don't think that experiment really works in today's modern environment. Yeah. With the foods that we have. Yep. I think there are a lot of people, if not most, where if you put them in a, and I think this is one of the problems with quote intuitive eating today, it doesn't account for the food that we have today in a way. It's kind of like saying like, instead of intuitive eating, maybe intuitive drugging or something. It'd be like, try to intuitively engage with cocaine you know, stop when you've had enough cocaine. It's like, I don't know that you would have this intuitive response to stopping cocaine. And I'm not saying processed foods are cocaine, but I think a lot of them have been scientifically engineered to activate very similar type neuropathways. Well, they disrupt our satiety signals. Yeah. And they they just want you eating more. They just make your brain want to eat more and more and more. So it can be hard for a person to be, quote, intuitive if they're eating foods that are set up to make them not intuitive. Well, it was impossible for me to be intuitive when I ate like that. And it's true because all the times that I tried intuitive eating right before I got to 210 pounds, that's the way I was living most recently. Prior to that was I was fully embracing intuitive eating, but I was eating that highly palatable food, fast food, processed food. And I never, like if I asked myself, am I hungry? The answer was always yes. So actually, oh, Jen, this is a great follow-up because there was one other fascinating thing that I took away from the study that I wanted to discuss, and it's perfect to this. So they also looked at how hunger hormones related to different types of food. So they looked at sweets, salty and starchy foods, fruits, meats, poultry, and food overall. Meats and poultry are the same thing. I'm so confused. (laughs) We tried meat, then we tried poultry, then we tried, I'm like, okay, all right. Well, meat slash poultry, so it was all one thing. I don't know why they don't just say, but I don't know why they just don't say meat. But there must have been other categories as well because they they make a point later about something. It always drives me crazy when, <laughs> that's one of the things like you're really upset with studies is when they like say things and then they like reference something, but they, there's not all the data. Like I want all the data because later they reference something that I'm about to say, which you'll understand. So- There was two types of foods that 
actually were not affected by the circadian patterns. Would you like to guess what those are? Two types of foods that were not affected by circadian hunger patterns? Yeah, because you know how this was saying that people were hungrier at like 8 p.m. and less hungry in the morning? So there were two types of foods, and and I didn't give you all the categories, so they may or may not be in the category I just listed. So are you, these are two types of foods that people would overeat? Know that they had no significant like hunger hormones related to circadian rhythm and their desire for that food. I'm going to say protein, like meat then, right? No? Okay. Well, then the opposite of that? <laughs> You're just going to have to tell me. It's fascinating. I'll tell you what they were, and then I'll tell you um, what I thought that meant and then what the conclusion they drew was. Vegetables and dairy. Yeah, I'm trying to understand what, what they were saying completely, like... They're saying that your consumption of those things are unrelated to your hunger hormones. Is that what they're saying? So they were asking the participants to rate their appetite all throughout the day. And like, they'd be like, how hungry are you for meat right now? How hungry are you for dairy right now? How hungry are you for, you know, so they would ask like the different types of foods, all of the foods related to the original hunger hormones. So like, you know, you're hungry. So like with like protein and things like that, you're hungry at night. So you'd be hungrier at night for protein. With the exception of dairy and vegetables, it didn't relate to any circadian hunger hormone. So you're not more likely to be hungry for dairy at this time, and you're not more likely to be hungry for vegetables at this time, whereas with all the other things, you are. Okay. All right. I get it now. I wasn't sure what was being said. Now I get it. All right. I got excited because I read that, and I was like, well, that makes sense because vegetables don't provide, you know, they're they're micronutrients. They don't really provide any protein for building block. They don't provide like high energy intake. So they don't provide anything that we would be always wanting when we're in like the the fed state. So I was like, that makes sense. And then dairy on the flip side is the complete opposite. It's the one food that is like everything you need to instantly grow, instantly put on weight, instantly like it's the food that's made to grow a human being. So it makes sense that we might always have a desire for it. Their conclusion was for the vegetables that it suggests that the circadian system, I'm quoting, particularly regulates the desire for high energy foods. So that was what I was thinking that made me really happy. But then I got sad because they didn't address the dairy aspect, which made me really sad. But my theory about the dairy is that it's it's kind of the same thing, but the complete opposite. Sorry, Jen, you should see me. I just get really happy when I like think something and then they reach the similar. <laughs> and then they said it too. Like, yes, I'm not like completely stupid. But yeah, isn't that interesting though? All of that? Yeah. And it comes back to me always to say that our bodies drive us to eat and consume certain things. And so people who are like feeling weak about the urge to eat, that's your body driving you to do that. So understand, learn how to listen to your body, understand what it's telling you choose real food so you can really get those signals, eat nutrients. You know, th- those things are just so important, but your body is, is steering you. Exactly. A huge takeaway. Like I said, there's, so there's nothing wrong with the fact that we're hungrier in the evening. Like you can use that to your advantage. I was actually finishing up an interview yesterday. <laughs> you know, I keep talking about, I'm listening to interviews with Jack Dorsey, the Twitter guy yesterday. And while I was listening to, listening to the podcast, he said he gave out his routine of every day. And I was like, literally, this is my routine. Like, except I don't, I didn't invent Twitter. But (laughs) (laughs) Um, it was like, wake up, cold shower. I was like, check. And then it was like, meditation. I was like, check. And then he was like, put on the exact same clothes to reduce decision fatigue. I was like, check. 
<laughs> and then um, it was like, go for a run. I, I don't do that though. So fail there. Back to the decision fatigue real quick. I don't feel like it's a bad decision. I love putting on different different outfits every day. It makes me happy. And we've talked about that before, but I don't understand. I want to wear something different. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Sorry, Dorsey. And me. <laughs> I am. Sorry, Melody. I don't want to live in the future where we're on spaceships and we all have a uniform. I do not. Well, I like to, for my every day-to-day life, wear the exact same thing. And then if it's like, if I'm going out, that's the moment that I'm like, yay, pick out something. So I, I still have my happy moment, but it's reserved for dress up occasions. Otherwise, I am very happy to like find a shirt that is comfortable, preferably all black and get like 10 copies of it and just wear it every day. It's one less thing to think about. <laughs> but yeah, so it was like that. Then it was like exercise meetings. I was like, check. And then it was come home like infrared sauna. I was like, check. And then it was one meal a day one big meal a day was like, check. Yeah. So it was literally everything. Although then I got jealous because he says that one day a week, he actually has a breakfast. This is so it all ties in together. That's why I brought it up. One day a week, he has a breakfast meal instead of the dinner meal. But then what he does instead is he still extends the fast until the following dinner. So then it's a way for him to both have like this breakfast experience, but then have one extended fast, one longer fast. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I'm so jealous because every time I try that, I try that so often, Jen. Like, I'll be like, today's the day I'm going to do a big breakfast and then I'm going to have a long fast. Oh, it just does not work. If, if listeners have any, any tips or tricks there, because that always fails for me epically. Have you ever been able to do that? I, I just can't. No, because I'm hungry later. I mean, I could, but I, I don't want to. You know, so it it doesn't feel good. I mean, I could power through. I could do anything if I really wanted to, if there was like a reason to. But, you know, when I'm hungry late in the day, I'm like, there is no reason for me to keep fasting right now. I'm just going to, you know, if I had had the big breakfast and I'm hungry later, I'm just going to eat. The reason I like want to do it so bad is because I love the idea of having, you know, a slightly longer fast here and there for the health benefits. But the idea of like going a whole day and then not eating at all that day and sleeping is just like, no, <laughs> like not an option. So I'm like, maybe if I eat breakfast, you know, eat everything at breakfast, then maybe I can like, you know, fall asleep normally at night, but I'm just always hungry at night. Yeah. And then I can't sleep. Yeah. So I got so jealous because the last thing he said was he was like saying how he sometimes has three day fast and wants to play around with ex- more extended fast. I'm so jealous of people that can, you know, do well with that because... I mean, I just don't want to. That's the thing. And so, you know, I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything that I should be having with the longer fast. Yeah. I guess I want to experience that. But you've never done alternate daily fasting, have you? Oh, heck no. I could never. <laughs> I did do that. And it worked really well for me. But this is back in 2016. Can you clarify which which version of it you did because that well I've done all the versions I've done all the versions I've done the 500 calorie meal version and I've done the full fast version for me I found at that time so I can only speak to at that time at that time I found the full fast worked better so I would do a 36 to 42 hour fast and then the next day would be an up day and I would eat however I wanted on the up day and I did that for I don't know a couple months back in like I said 2016 but since then I switched to an eating window approach just consistently, and that's how I feel the best at this point. But the other factor in that is I was already in my goal range at that point. 
So I don't know if that made a difference. Like if I had been, you know, still needing to lose a lot of fat, perhaps it would have been easier for me to continue with the alternate daily fasting. But I, I wasn't. So that was just a variable. I think that oftentimes we think fasting should be easier for people if they have more weight to lose. I don't know how much that's the case because I think that oftentimes people who have a lot of extra weight to lose, they could be in that state because there is metabolic issues. Well, I think it depends on how well you're tapping into your fat stores also. Like if you if you aren't tapping into your fat stores well, then it's fasting that I think is going to be harder. If you aren't tapping into your fat stores well, or if you don't have substantial fat stores, I think those are the two things that make fasting harder, not tapping into them well or not having sufficient fat stores. Yeah, I think that's great. Yeah. Can we get to this one listener feedback that I really wanted to get into from Allison? Would you read what Allison said? Because I loved this. I thought it was great because we get this question all the time in the Facebook groups. And the subject is, update, vaping while fasting. Allison says, hello, it is me again. I sent in a question last weekend asking if vaping affected fasting. Well, I researched this question and finally got to your podcast where you both talked about this topic. I usually was vaping on the super sweet flavors. I dumped the sweet flavors and bought some menthol, not sweet, and unflavored vape juice. And I feel even better than before. Wow, I notice a huge difference. I thought I was feeling great before, but when I made the switch, I noticed on the first full day that I had a full tank of energy all day. It has now been six days, and I'm still going strong on the energy levels throughout the day. I fast 20 to 21 hours a day. I am 100% positive that the sweet vape juice was triggering my insulin. I wish I knew this back in December when I started fasting, but you live and you learn. I am now experiencing even more benefits of IF, and I am never going back to those yucky sweet flavors. I noticed that I'm starting to lose more weight than before. I'm still loving the podcast, and I just wanted to give an update. I love you both, and keep it up. I love that feedback. I know. I'm so glad you brought that up. That was perfect. Yeah. Just because, you know, people ask that, and we don't have research on vaping and fasting. They haven't done it. Vaping is too new. And I really honestly don't know that they would do that study because they they wouldn't want to to probably do it. You know, they call them flavors. So I can't imagine that the flavor would not give the same response as if you were, you know, having something else. So thank you for sharing, Allison. And anyone who's vaping, yeah, it could be affecting your fast. And I, I think that it probably is. Yep. Could not agree more. All right. Well, this was absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go. If you'd like to submit your own questions to the podcast, and yes, we do answer questions typically, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. We are a Himalaya partnered show. And if you follow us in the Himalaya app, you'll get early access to the podcast 24 hours in advance. So definitely check that out. You can also join us in our Facebook communities. There are links to those in the show notes. You can follow us on Instagram. We are I of Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, Janice Jen Stevens. And you can follow us on Twitter. We are the I of Pod. Oh, and you can also go to ifpodcast.com slash stuff we like for all of the stuff that we like. All right. So anything from you, Jen, before we go? Nope. I think that's it. Everybody stay safe, stay busy, have some fun, bring the joy into your life and Think of things that can make you happy every day. I agree. Things that you're grateful for. All right. Well, I will talk to you next week. Bye. Talk to you then. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. 
Please remember that everything discussed on the show is not medical advice. We're not doctors. You can also check out our other podcasts, Intermittent Fasting Stories and the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.